Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. But I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. Welcome back to the program. Whenever we see or hear great art, we're usually inclined to wonder about the forces that created it. What constitutes the artistic life? What influences, combined with what DNA, creates the perfect storm of artistic temperament, vision, and creation? My guest, longtime music critic and editor for the LA Times, Robert Hilburn, has made trying to understand these things his life's work. He's reported extensively about many pop music legends, including Dylan... Springsteen, Elton John, and John Lennon. Now in his new book, he turns his attention to the life and legend of Johnny Cash. It is my pleasure to welcome Robert Hilburn back to this program to talk about Johnny Cash, a life. Robert Hilburn, welcome back to the program. Hey, Jeff, how are you? That was a terrific uh, description of what I was trying to do in the book, the idea of trying to understand the artistry of, of somebody. Uh, because I, so many music, books I read about musicians and actors and stuff, are about the personal life of that person. The, the art is almost side, uh, you know, a side issue. They'll, people will often write in books that if this song or this movie was a hit or not, but they won't try to understand why the, the song was written, why the song was recorded, what other things are going on in the person's life at that time, why someone's music is better at a certain point in their life than the other. So I really wanted to get that point across, so it's wonderful to hear you describe exactly what I was trying to do. Well, thank you. I mean, one, one of the things that's particularly interesting and, and maybe even a little bit ironic with respect to Johnny Cash is that his life in some ways parallels almost one of his songs. I mean, the, the, huh. the rough-hewn nature of his childhood being perhaps the penultimate example. It certainly does. You know, and... The point, I never planned on writing a book on Johnny Cash. I, I knew John from, it's, uh, it's hard to even believe this, from days of Folsom Prison concert when I was actually there covering it for the L.A. Times. You were, you were the I, only oh, reporter there at the time, correct? The only music writer there, and the reason was, I, I, won, I heard about the concert, and I, I was trying to get a job at the L.A. Times, so I said, that would be a great story. Would you please let me go there and do that story? It was kind of like a tryout, if you will. And nobody, I, when I got there, I, I found out no, there was no other music writer invited by the record company. And I later realized the reason was they were afraid he might show up stoned and have to cancel the concert, and they didn't want bad publicity. Isn't that amazing? Talk a little bit. I mean, while we're on that subject, talk a bit about that concert, because it was a big turning point for him. Yeah, and, and the thing I didn't realize at that time was he was in good shape on that stage. I mean, he had taken a few pills that day, but he was in good shape. I, I had not been around that many you know, entertainers. I didn't know if he was on pills or not, but he was very dynamic. It was a fantastic concert. But later I find, when I'm writing the book, that just three months before that was almost the worst time of his life. He was suicidal. He almost died from, you know, a couple of accidents. 
it was a miracle that he lived you know, th- those two months, and then he was so dynamic on that stage. You know, that, that again, the, 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 you know, studying somebody's life in detail is amazing because the only times when I wrote thousands of stories, I would usually have, if I was doing a profile, I'd have a, a, an hour with the person, I'd have maybe a day to talk to other people, or maybe a, the luxury a week to write a story. Now and so and what you I, I tended to find in spending three years writing the Johnny Cash book that how little we know about all these celebrities, Jeff. Even people you you interview time after time because we're just knowing what they're telling us. You know, they choose to tell us what they want to tell us. Sometimes it's 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 fictional, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's only part of the truth. So how but how little we know really about uh, these people and I found out I was just stunned by how much I didn't know about Johnny Cash, and I thought I'd kind of kept an eye on him you know, his entire career. I thought I knew Johnny Cash. I thought I was going to just sit down and write the book, a nice book about his life, but I found out it was such a different story altogether. One of the things that's particularly more complicated about Cash is that he created many of these apocryphal stories, and as you say, he never let the truth get in the way of a good story, so it was often hard to tell where the truth stopped and the fiction began. Yeah, and that was one of the first eye-openers for me as a writer or a journalist, uh, because I had always thought if I had talked to somebody, that's the absolute truth, you know. I could say, well, he told me this. But, I, you know, I learned so much that, and in John's case, it wasn't so much lying. It was, it was dramatizing. A, a, he would take a germ of truth and dramatize it. For instance, at this point before Folsom Prison, he'd been arrested again uh, in Georgia, and the, 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 the policeman said, look, I'm not going to hold you in jail. You can go. If you want to kill yourself, my, fan, my wife's a big fan of yours. If you want to kill yourself, go ahead and do it. She cried when she heard you were in my jail. And that stunned him so much that this man would have such, you know, kind of those feelings for him that he thought about suicide. And, but, but he didn't do it. Now, but instead of saying, I thought about suicide, he made up a story about him going into a cave, crawling into it as far as you can, uh, it, hoping that he would no one would ever find him, and then a wisp of air comes up, and it kind of leads him to an exit. And June Carter and his his mother are there waiting for him. Well, now what really that didn't happen because that cave we found out was underwater at the time. Plus, he was still on drugs when he got out of the cave. He wasn't. It wasn't June and his mother waiting there, and he says that's the end of my drugs. But that's a more interesting story the way he tells it than just to say I was on drugs. But there was a germ of truth in almost everything he said. The other aspect, you touched on this a little while ago, is that, and this is certainly true of other performers, but it seemed to be particularly true of him, that that his persona on stage, the way he was when he was on stage, was almost a different person than what would happen when he got off stage. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the, 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 there was a couple of people told me the same story, that no matter where he went, if he went to an Indian res- Native American reservation, if he went to a prison, if he went to uh, play for a, a serviceman in Vietnam, if he went to the White House, if he went to a, 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 a businessmen's convention, everybody, um, most people in the audience thought he was one of them. You know, and maybe his greatest talent, I mean, certainly he was a smart man. He had, I'm told he had an IQ of 160. He, uh, he was, and he had a purpose in his music. He was a good songwriter. But I think his greatest talent might have been his empathy with other people, the fact that he grew up an underdog in Dice, Arkansas, in a cotton field, and he felt like he, he went to Detroit to kind of get a job in the auto industry, and, and, and the doctor called him a hillbilly hick and stuff, and so he felt like he was this underdog, and his whole life, 
he was looking at other, the audience as an underdog kind of, trying to see how can I reach out to them and help and inspire them and lift their spirits. And that was an amazing, that was his gift. That was the thing that made Johnny Cash important and, and memorable. If he'd just been an entertainer, you know, he, we would not be talking about him any more than we were talking about many other good entertainers, Ray Price, Marty Robbins, people who were his contemporaries. But there was this extra purpose in his music, and, and there was, it came from his heart. It, wasn't, it was an honest purpose. So when he was looking on stage and reaching out to the audience, he was really reaching out as a friend and somebody who was almost a preacher who was trying to help him, and people sensed that. How much of that was intentional? How much of the sense of social idealism that was part of his music was something that he thought about, or how much just sort of grew naturally out of out of things like Woody Guthrie and, and the social idealism that was around at the time he grew up? Yeah, I think it grew up naturally. He was and like on the cotton field. He's six, seven years old, eight years old. He goes out in the cotton field. It's hot. It's hot weather. They're picking cotton, and his family's always singing every day. Sings gospel songs to make the time go better, to give him you know comfort. Three times a week, his family would take him to the local Baptist church, and he would hear all the. This whole town was set up by the federal government to help destitute farmers. He would hear those farmers singing gospel songs again to help them their spirits to get them through the week and he didn't they didn't have to, he wasn't forced to go to the church or three times a week he wanted to go he loved hearing that singing and seeing those people's spirits lifted and that naturally entered in his heart or his mind he wanted to use that he wanted originally to be a gospel singer but he sam phillips said we can't sell gospel music john so you got to try something else but but that that thing of music lifting people's spirits stayed with him and is in it in his best of times, the best music he made, there was usually an element of that in the music. And he became he came to realize that he could also change social attitudes with his music. Yeah, I think he was one of the really first people to understand that. I mean, I think he influenced rock in that sense. I think uh, you know Dylan was very much influenced by Cash. He saw I, you know Dylan here. He of course loves Woody Guthrie. He wants to be Woody Guthrie. He in the early '60s though he wonders if you can really be a good artist. And because uh, a lot of a lot of folk music was kind of corny, a lot of the, the hit folk music of the early '60s, he said, oh, "Can you really be a Woody Guthrie kind of person and stand up for something and still be a credible artist?" And he saw Johnny Cash, and he wrote just eloquent things, Jeff, in his book, in his uh, w- when John died about Johnny Cash is my north star. You know, just beautiful stuff about Johnny Cash. And see, I, and I think other people picked up on that. Uh, so I think Springsteen, and I think you too, and I think all uh, you know these these people who who used their music to help social change. I think Johnny Cash, you could make a case, was maybe the first one of the modern pop rock era who did that. You mentioned Sam Phillips at Sun Records. He really is the one that, that discovered Cash. Yeah, Sam Phillips was great. You know, the idea is there's so much luck in a person's career. That's one, I mean, you could, you're, you're, yes, you have to have the talent and you have to be determined and you have to be strong, but you have to have some luck too. So, he he. Dice Arkansas was fifty miles from Memphis, but in those days it was like a thousand miles. In his whole childhood, he only went three times to Memphis. So, but after he goes to the service, he comes back, and he wants to be a country singer. So why doesn't he go to Nashville? That's where the country music singers are all made. Well, he didn't have the confidence to, to, that he was good enough yet. Plus, he his brother who lived in Memphis, said, I can get you a job if you come here, John. And so he was a practical guy. He goes to Memphis so he can get a job to support his family. But in going to Memphis, at that particular time, it was the best place he could possibly be because the day after Johnny Cash moved to Memphis, Elvis Presley cut 
his first record with Sam Phillips. And so there was this recording studio right in Memphis, and there was this great man, Sam Phillips, who was not looking to copy what Nashville was doing. He was looking for people who were individual. He, when Johnny Cash goes into audition, he's not looking for a Nashville singer or another Elvis Presley. He's trying to find somebody else who touches him, and he saw the raw talent in, in, Sam, in Johnny Cash, which probably nobody else in Nashville would have seen. You mentioned before the addiction. This had been a problem for Cash from very, very early on, the pills. Well, yeah, his, I mean, his sister said he started smoking when he was around 10, and that was his first addiction, kind of. Uh, and so, so as, as life goes on, it gets complicated. I mean, he, as a young man, his, I mean, as, as a boy, his best, his, the brother who, who he idolized dies, and the trauma is his father, who adored the brother and thought John was lazy and shiftless, said, in a sense, I wish you would have died instead of him. So what a trauma that has on a young, you know, on a boy. So he grows up with that pain and that sense of loss and that void, not having the father's love, losing his brother. Then he gets into uh, this marriage, which turns out not to be really heaven sent because he wanted to be out on the road being a country singer all the time. His wife, Vivian, wanted to be home with the family, which, you know, quite naturally. And so every time he would come home from the road, there would be tension. And that tension kept growing and growing, and he hated going back home because there would always be arguments. So he started taking pills to block out some of that. Then he pretty much abandons his family and his daughters particularly. That makes him even more guilty. He starts taking more pills. He feels like he's not living up to the Christian faith of his, that he had his childhood. That takes more pills. And so where everybody in country music was taking pills, there was an old saying they would, they would for, for energy mostly at night on these long drives, they would say, how far is it from Dallas to Atlanta? Two pills would be the answer. But he would take 10 and 20 pills a day because he, he had this addictive personality and he was trying to block out all this pain. How was he perceived by people in Nashville once he started to have some success? I don't know. You know I mean, certainly, certainly Columbia Records signed him. They saw what was happening at, uh, uh, at Sun Records. And Don Law, who was the rec- record producer there in charge of Columbia Records, signed him, thought he had a lot of potential as a songwriter. And actually, he was Sam Phillips' favorite artist more than Elvis because John was an adult. He was reaching out to adults. He was a songwriter. So it really broke Johnny, uh, Sam's heart when Johnny Cash left to go to Columbia. But he was, there was always kind of an antagonism between uh, him and Nashville because he didn't dress like them. You know, he, dressed in, he didn't wear the sequin suits and mm-hmm. stuff. In fact, when he started wearing these dark clothes and stuff, the nickname when Nashville for him was The Undertaker. <laughs> and uh, so there was a tension. He didn't want to move to that. He leaves Memphis, okay, at a certain time after he signs to Columbia, but he didn't move to Nashville. He wanted to be independent of that conventional country music sound. So he goes to Los Angeles. Uh, but, but, so that was one of the, the first breaks. He wanted to make the music he wanted to make. Everybody else in Nashville only wanted to make music that would be a hit on the jukebox. He was trying to do something deeper, or you might say higher, with his music. Talk about his mythologizing so much of, of American iconography, whether it was railroads or highways or factories. Well, you see, the, 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 growing up, you know, the, the railroad was so important. That was the door to the, that was the, that was the symbol. It was the door out of there. It was the door to the bigger, the big city. And he listened on the radio and he heard these country music singers and he wanted to be in the big city. But, and, and the hard work. So you, by writing about the railroad and the land and the history of the country, he was trying to talk often about struggle. Uh, a lot of the people in, in the Old West were struggling. And, and so he was talking about a character's a value, American values and character in a lot of those songs. That's what he was trying to convey, the underdog and the characters and, and the hard life. And, 
and we can learn from all this. So there was a purpose in all those concept albums he was doing at a time when neither his fans nor his record company in the early 60s wanted him to do concept albums. They wanted him to make hits for the jukebox. But he was a, that was what I, the one thing I learned in looking back over his entire catalog was this strong, strong sense of doing what he wanted to do as an artist. There was also this, even within individual songs, this powerful sense of storytelling that really drove his work. Yeah, he was a natural storyteller. I think I mean, he loved telling stories. He used to write stories as a child. He would do, often do other kids' homework. You know, they had to write essays or poems. He would do that kind of stuff. But a lot of that came from Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers was his hero, the singing brakeman from the 30s, the, real, the father of modern country music. And he who lived, who worked on the railroad and wrote songs about the railroad and travel, and he wrote a song called Hobo Bill's Last Ride, where the hobo dies on the train, and all that stuff really affected Cash and, and that storytelling. So you find a lot of that Jimmy Rogers storytelling tradition in Johnny Cash's best works, Five Feet High on Ryzen and the Folsom Prison Blues. Even the line, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, that thought came from a Jimmy Rogers song where he thought he shot a woman you know, to watch her moan and groan or something like that. So, the, you know, there was a lot of the Jimmy Rogers. He was probably the person who most shaped Johnny Cash's music in terms of direction. Talk a little bit about the evolution of his music, the evolution of the art over time. Well, he, he, starts, off, he, he starts off with Sam Phillips, and, and they want hits, you know. That's, what, that's important. He wants to establish a career. Sam Phillips is saying, that doesn't sound like a hit, John. Give me another song. And then when he gets to Columbia, though, he, they say you, he, one reason he signs with the Columbia is you can do. I want to do anything I want. I want to do gospel songs. That's okay, John. I want to do this. That's okay, John. Anything he wanted to do, which was good and bad, uh, because what he chose to do was not very commercial. And and Columbia almost dropped him. They said you have one more recording session. If you don't come up with a hit this time, we're going to drop you in 1963. He comes up with Ring of Fire. They re-sign him. And now and the Folsom Prison album was another. That was another. He was kind of. He was kind of okay as a country star, but he wasn't really reaching the, the heights of things. And that, 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 that album, Folsom Prison, makes him a superstar. He has the television show. And then after he gets the television show, he really goes back and wants to do more of the gospel because he, he felt he had gotten away from his beliefs and his goal to be a gospel singer. So he starts doing more gospel songs. He starts... Uh, spending more and more time doing other things, being with his family more. He's off drugs now. He goes on Billy Graham crusades, and his music keeps taking less and less of his time. Gradually, the quality suffers, by the and, and people stop buying his records. By the time he realizes what's going on, he starts trying to do better music again, but the country music audience has already said, goodbye, Johnny Cash, we have new heroes. So it kept getting worse and worse and worse for him. And by 1990, he was a... Pretty much, he thought he, his career was over. He thought his legacy was ruined. He was really a sad, depressed guy, music-wise. He thought he had blown his legacy. And how did he go from being this professional has-been to being this almost patriarchal figure in the music business? Well, he was the patriarchal figure in the 70s. I think that's when, that's when he, the man in black, Sunday morning coming down, What is Truth, the television show, he was, the, he was considered the next John Wayne. That was that period. And see, it, it, toward the end, that, that, that finally, that kind, of, that kind of pushed him in different directions. He was always trying to live up to all that, and his music kind of got away from him. So the, the, the decline I'm talking about was later. That was, that was at the end of the 70s and pretty much through the 80s. And talk about how he reemerges with the help of Rick Rubin. Well, that's luck again. You know, we talked earlier about how luck comes into your career. So he's playing 
at this time, now 1993, he's about to go to Branson, Missouri, which is a retirement, almost in a sense, community where country stars go after their career is pretty much over. He's sometimes playing to 200 people a night in a 2,000-seat place. He's got nobody buys his records. He's got no confidence, and, and he's playing a, a club. I think it's like a 200-seat club in just south of Los Angeles in Santa Ana, and into the audience walks Rick Rubin, or a hip-hop producer of all things. And he had been—he was a very successful producer, doing rock and rap and stuff. And he thought, he, as an exercise, I would like to find a great artist who's not doing great work, and I'd like to see if I can get him back to doing great work. That was his mission going in there. And Johnny Cash, with reaction was, "Well, why do you want to even record with me? I'm—I've got no future. I've got no recording career." And Rick's biggest challenge was to rebuild Johnny Cash's confidence. But it was just luck that, I mean, in a way that Rick Rubin walks in Johnny Cash's life and, and re- rebuilds his legacy and extends it. And talk about the work that Cash did with Rubin. It was, it was amazing. It, it was almost like Rick Rubin sits Johnny Cash down the same way Sam Phillips sat him down back in the 50s. Because and, and, Rick took him to his house in Los Angeles and said, John, just play me some of your music. They spent a whole night. John sings 20 or 30 songs. Rick doesn't even turn on the, the tape recorder. He's trying to listen to hear something in Johnny Cash that he, that's missing. He, deep down, he wanted to take Johnny Cash back to the days of Folsom Prison when he was on stage and alive and alert and edgy and, and at his peak. And he was trying to get rid of all those years in the, in the late 70s and 80s when he was doing this mediocre work. And... So the second night, they sit down again and start listening to stuff. And after three or four songs, there's a song that hits Rick Rubin, and he turns on the the uh, recording equipment, just like Sam Phillips had done with Elvis and Johnny Cash back in the sun. He, he heard something that he wanted out of that artist, and the song that emerged was this song called Delia's Gone, which was an old folk song that Johnny Cash had rewritten. Uh, and that became the, the first step in the comeback. And what will be the lasting influence in musically of Cash? Well, see, I think I think that that those Rick Rubin years, those last songs he did, because John had had stumbled through so much. You know, he was uh, I, he he just needed somebody who could sit down like Sam Phillips again with Rick Rubin and say, John, I think this song is terrific. I think that we can pass on that. He needed some kind of direction at that point in his life. But at that point, he was such a pure artist and singing from his heart that those recordings are just. Phenomenal. Some of the song selections I would think might be misguided. I don't think we needed to hear "Bridge Over Troubled Water" again. But uh, at, at, toward the end of their life, they realized they they winning Grammy awards, they're getting a claim. He's got his respect back, his confidence back, and they both realize they they both think that he's got one last album. His health is getting so bad, Jeff. He can't see anymore. He's lost the feelings in his fingers. He's got diabetes. He's he's got a neurological disease di- disorder. He's got uh, his jaws in constant pain because he'd been broken and it was never properly fixed. So he's in constant pain, but he's making this music. And at the end of the life, Rick Rubin finds the song Hurt for Cash. Cash records it. Johnny Cash writes the song that's his last gospel song called The Man Comes Around. They're put on his last album as, as on bookends. The album, the Hurt video is tremendous success. The album sells two million copies. It matches the success of Folsom Prison at the you know at a time when he can barely sit in a chair. It's just an inspiring story. Robert Hilburn, the book is Johnny Cash: The Life. It is just out from Little Brown. 
Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, those are great questions, Jeff. It really really went fast. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks, pal. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole the old familiar thing Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the air And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt You stay the hell away from me, you hear?